Again, for those of you who don't know me, I'm um, Pastor uh, Paul Wrigley, and uh, glad to fill in for uh, Pastor Carlos while he is gone. And I had the privilege of preaching a couple of weeks ago, and you learned a little bit something about me, how this was uh, my stomping grounds back when I was an A6 pilot, and how I love the uh, sound of freedom. Of course, the sound of freedom has given me hearing loss in both ears and ringing in both ears, and that's uh, some of what happens. But I have many fond memories of my time here. And delighted to share the Word of God with you this morning as we think about Father's Day. I went online and Googled Father's Day to see what would pop up. And if you haven't done so, it's an interesting exercise because you'll find that fathers and Father's Day are under assault right now, and so are mothers. I did a bit of Googling and found out, for example, last month there was a, uh, a school in Canada that eliminated Mother's Day and Father's Day. And they sent a note out to uh, the parents and said this, We have traditionally shown our appreciation for all of our wonderful parents by setting up a card-making station for the children in each room so they can make cards for Mother's Day and Father's Day, then in parentheses, if they like. But times they are changing, exclamation mark. We have single-parent families, dual-mom families, families that are just about every shape and size, and rather than inadvertently point out differences in families during Mother's Day and Father's Day, we're going to offer the children card-making stations to celebrate Parents' Day in July. And this past week in Canada, they just passed a law that has yet to be signed that essentially criminalizes using the wrong pronoun. And it's for gender identity and gender expression. New York has already done this. There's 31 expressions in New York City that if you use the wrong pronoun, you can be fined up to $250,000. Found another article from Rad Dad Magazine. And it speaks that we need to have a feminist Father's Day. So I was reading, well, what does that mean? And Rad Dad Magazine says that fighting patriarchy requires more than believing that individually we are not like in quotes, those other men. Because privilege doesn't work that way. It goes on saying that we believe that the key lies in changing masculinity. To raise boys to feel cared for, to be aware of their own feelings, to see women as people like themselves and not objects. And by the way, that actually is a biblical approach to manhood and what we should be teaching our sons and our daughters. To hold men accountable for their behavior. By the way, the Lord does hold us accountable for our behavior. For demonstrating compassion and empathy, and we should be teaching our boys and men to be compassionate and empathetic. In addition to including our sons when imagining and practicing feminist parenting, still not sure what that is. We all know that in order to end misogyny and patriarchal evidence or violence, men in the millions need to make feminism central to their lives. And again, that then becomes an idol because the Lord should be central to our lives. Found another blogger who said this. He says, A typical stroll through feminist media will, will leave you with a strong impression of what feminists think about men. In general, and these are linked different articles, men are stupid, men are weak, men are obsolete, men are arrogant, men are clueless, men are useless. And then he says, Can't you feel the love? So then, where do we go from here? We do know from societal studies that there are dangers when men are absent in the lives of their children. 
And I found a study that says the nine devastating effects of absent fathers. And it goes on to say this. Interestingly, it's been shown that the effects of emotionally unavailable fathers were almost identical to those whose father was physically absent. What are some of the detriments of having uh, no father or absent fathers emotionally? Five times the average suicide rate, dramatically increased rates of depression and anxiety, 32 times the average rate of incarceration, decreased education levels, increased dropout rates, consistently lower average incomes, and it goes on and on and on for that. So, where do we go from here? Perhaps you've had a bad father or no father. Or perhaps you've not been a good father the way that you should be. We look to the Lord. It was alluded in our prayer this morning. We have a, hev we have a perfect heavenly father. One who is a protector of widows. One who is father to the fatherless. And so we look to the Lord. We can also look in the scriptures and in the church to godly examples of parenting, of fathering. And so instead of making feminism our idol and central to our lives, we turn to the Lord and make Him our God and the central aspect of our lives. So this morning, I want us to look at a few verses from the first Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 10 through 12, where Paul writes, and this is what Paul says. He says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was their conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we look at your word this morning that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged. Lord, that we would turn our thoughts and attention to you. And we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You know, as I was thinking about this passage and briefly talking about absent fathers, sometimes we can't help that, of being absent. And oftentimes we stayed in the military. Remember back when I was flying A6s, and that does seem like ages ago. That was in the late 70s and early 80s. My 35 months in the squadron, I was at sea for 18 months, and that doesn't count the other times that I was away for training. Or uh, one of my first tours as a chaplain on a ship. In one year, I was gone for 275 days. And that's what happens, and yet we have the Lord with us to help us as we parent. And I'm not going to focus on wives and mothers right now because this is Father's Day. But as fathers, we could not do it without our spouses, without the mothers, because they play an integral role. But we'll focus today upon fathers. This morning we'll look at verse 10, where it talks of a father's loving conduct, and verses 11 and 12, what I would call a father's loving encouragement. And both of those uh, verses break down, as I saw it, into different sections of witnesses, and then some sort of action or attitude, and then a purpose for those actions or attitudes. And we'll look at that this morning. And as the other preacher said last week, I can hear the silence now as the air conditioning went off there. Let's look at verse 10 where we talk about a father's loving conduct. And Paul writes, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you. And so they are witnesses. What are witnesses? Well, witnesses attest to the fact or truth of something. And Paul says right now, you Thessalonians are witnesses. 
they have observed the conduct of uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of Paul, Sobatus, and Timothy. They have seen their conduct towards the Thessalonians. They've seen the outward conduct. But Paul also goes on that God is a witness as well. But what is God a witness to? God could witness things that we cannot. He knows what is inside. He knows our, our attitudes. He knows our thoughts. And certainly he sees our actions. And this was a reminder that God the Father sees our actions but also knows what is in our heart. The psalmist, uh, David writes in Psalm 139, verses 1 and 2, he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from from afar. And later on, he says, search my heart. God knows our actions and our attitudes. He knows our inner motivations. And in verse uh, 2, 4 in Thessalonians, Paul writes, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. He knows what's inside us, fathers. And so what do we do? We turn to the Lord who can transform us, who can make us into the men and fathers that He has called us to be. The men and fathers that we are not nationally inclined to be, but we can do it in the power of the Lord. And like it or not, our children witness how we conduct ourselves. Are we setting a good example? Are we loving them? And Paul's going to tell us a little bit more about this. So then he goes on after witnesses. He talks about... Excuse me here. Talks about conduct. And he uses, for those who like grammar, three different adverbs to describe the conduct. What are adverbs? They're qualifiers. And most of the time they... uh, The words end in L-Y. The ESV doesn't do that, but some of the other translations do. And what were the godly qualifiers of conduct that Paul addresses? He uses three adverbs of holy, righteous, and blameless. He says our conduct towards you was holy. Other translations would be devoutly, piously, holily. I think that's what the King James says. There's your L-Y ending there. And one of the translations in a lexicon says, in a holy manner. And in general, as one commentator says, it's devoted to God's service. And so holy. The other conduct, uh, qualifier of conduct, should be righteous. Other translations will be justly, uprightly, rightly. And a uh, lexicon would translate it this way, to live uprightly and comes up to a specific standard of righteousness. Now on our own, we cannot meet that standard of righteousness. What is the standard of righteousness? Perfection. Jesus says, you shall be perfect or holy as my heavenly Father is perfect or holy. And we can't do that. But we walk with the Lord, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, of of what we can do. And so, we are to be righteous. It says we are to be blameless. One translation is blamelessly. To behave blamelessly in light of a given norm without reproach. Now, again, that's a problem for us because our nature is not that way. Paul says in Romans 3.10 that none is righteous, no, not one. And in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet we have hope because of our faith and our relationship with Christ. Again, as we discussed during our prayer of confession, we have a father that we can say, Abba. That's a term that's like daddy. We can have that relationship with our heavenly father that can inform us as fathers of how we should be and how we should approach our children. And so we should be holy, 
We should be righteous. We should be blameless in our conduct towards our children. Now, by the way, these are also characteristics of God himself. He is holy. He is righteous. He is blameless. The adverb here that's used for as holy or holily is used of Jesus in, in the book of Hebrews. And so these attributes are true of God himself. And what we would say is this, that all a Christian's conduct towards God or man springs from being born again. This is not natural for us because as Paul said, none is right before God that we are all sinners. Well, where is our hope? Our hope is found in Christ. Paul, again, as he writes to the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 5.17, says that in Christ we are new creations. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what gives us hope. We can't change on our own. But we have a God who transforms us, who indwells us, who gives us the ability that we cannot do on our own. And so we're new creations. And so that's how we can have conduct towards God and towards men and towards our children. So the Thessalonians and God are witnesses. Paul talks about three elements of godly conduct. But what was the purpose for this? Paul used a grammatical construction here that speaks for the benefit, so you could almost translate it this way. You're my witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct for the benefit of you believers. Paul and them, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, like a father, their conduct was for the benefit of the Thessalonians, whereas a father for the benefit of their children. Uh, for their advantage. And again, as fathers, we should be seeking the advantage of our children. Now, Jesus likens this, and Jesus knows how we are and says this in Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11. He says, Of which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, Give good things to those who ask Him. And so Jesus here is saying, I know you fathers are not perfect. But yet, when your child asks you for something, generally speaking, you will give them good. How much more will our Heavenly Father do? And so we always look to our Heavenly Father who guides us, instructs us, nourishes us, encourages us, and sometimes disciplines us as well. What does also Paul do here? He tells the Thessalonians, as we should tell our children, that they are loved by God. They're chosen by God. Verse 1-4, um, Paul writes this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Fathers, are you telling your children that you love them? Are you telling your wives that you love them? Are you telling them that they are special in the Lord? And we need to remember that the Lord helps us parent. That's why when we do baptism, we are committing to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We realize that we cannot do it on our own. We don't have the capacity or the ability to do it right. And so the Lord helps us. The Lord partners with us as we parent. And so we tell them that they are loved by God. Paul basically tells the Thessalonians that they should be imitators of Him uh, Timothy and Sylvanus, but also imitators of God. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, 
Again, Paul writes um, this. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word of much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So Paul says, Be imitators of us and be an example. We want our kids to imitate us, at least in the good things that we do, to imitate us, but also to be an example for others. What we do know is that good or bad is that our kids will imitate us. I remember at a previous duty station, one of the fathers was sharing with me how his son was taking a crayon and holding it like a cigarette. Why? Because daddy smoked. Or how some of the kids were imitating their parents and going to the club. They were going clubbing. On the other hand, we see perfect examples, not perfect, but good examples where you see generations of, of men who have loved the Lord from the grandfather to the father to the grandson and hopefully to the great-grandson of setting the example of how they treat their wives, of how they treat their daughters, of setting the example there. And so they are to become imitators of Paul's band and the Lord. We want our children to imitate us. So here's my challenge, fathers. Our fathers or our application, our families and God should be able to attest to our conduct. A loving father seeks to benefit his children by his conduct and attitude, point them to God the Father, and again, share the gospel. We need to be teaching our children. We see this even back in Deuteronomy. While this is written to all of Israel, it's part of what they call the Shema from the Hebrew word to hear. And this is a familiar passage that you've heard. But in Deuteronomy 6, 4-7, Moses writes this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that, <coughs> that I command you shall be upon your heart. And you shall teach them building to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. So we need to be teaching our children at all the time. Now this doesn't mean that mothers can't do that as well, but we're focusing on dads this morning. So, you may be saying to yourself, I have failed as a father. And we all do. What then do we do if we have failed? We repent. We confess our sin. Perhaps we confess our sin to our wife or to our children. We start over in the scriptures. Perhaps we can get training and we can meet with other godly men in the church. And we can mentor, older men can mentor the younger men. These are some of the things that we can do if we have failed. And we keep our eyes upon Jesus, keep our eyes upon the Father who encourages us, who forgives us, who guides us and instructs us. So in verse 10, we've looked at a father's loving conduct. Paul then changes a little bit and talks about in verses 11 12, what I would call a father's loving encouragement. He writes, For ye know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, and encourage you, and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Again, just like in verse 10 where Paul talks about witnesses, we have witnesses here. But here he talks to Thessalonians and he says, you know 
They have experiential knowledge of something. And that you is in the plural. You Thessalonians, you know something about us. You know how like a father with his children, we did certain things. And then he goes on, he talks about each of you. So we see general parenting, but also parenting for specific things the way a child is. Proverbs 22, 6, again, famous verse, train up a child in the way he should go, and what? When he's old, he will not depart from that. Some would say that that means that you train up a child according to his bent or according to his nature. And that is true, but we have to realize, as one commentator said, by nature, our children are sinners. And so you have to be careful that you don't, as he says, train up a child in his evil way. When he's old, he won't depart from his evil ways. There's two ways, either evil or right. But we train up a child according to his bent, according to his nature. Each child is different. And Paul here, as he talks with the Thessalonians, he, he, he says, each one of you, it speaks to that personal relationship of one-on-one. -on -one. You may have many kids, you may have just a few, but are you spending that time with each child? Encouraging them, training them up. And this word for train has the idea of starting early or initiating it. Perhaps even the children's catechism. I went to a chaplain's training with our denomination just before General Assembly. And they've made a subtle change. They used to have what they call children's catechism. Now it's called first catechism. Why? Because they're finding, as I found out, the answer is God. That's pretty simple, isn't it? What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For His own glory. So we start teaching our children while they are young. We start teaching young believers while they are new in the faith about the Lord. And so we take that individual time. And that's what Paul was talking about here. Also note the affection in the comparison. Like a father and then with what follows. Do we have affection for our kids? We should. And how does he do it with his actions? Again, he talks about exhorting and encouraging and charging. And he used the construction here that's in the present tense, although it was in the past. He talks about consistently doing these three things. It's not just once. And what are these three things? What are these consistent godly actions? The first is exhorting. Again, Paul says, like a father, we exhorted each one of you. The, the word for exhorting has the idea of appealing to, urging, or encouraging to exhort or direct to a particular line of conduct, what the lexicon says. It's not beating a child down, but it's directing a child in the course of action that we want. That's good for them. He then goes on and talks about encouraging. It has the idea of strengthening or cheering somebody up. And it's previous to the previous verb of um, exhorting. And so... Again, it has the idea of heart in the face of difficulty because our children will face difficulty. We face difficulty. To encourage, to continue in a course. So the first word says we want to direct them a certain way. The second word says we want to encourage them to continue in the right way. So we direct. We encourage them to continue in a certain course. Um, this word is also used in chapter 5 of encouraging to comfort the faint-hearted. And what we have here is reinforcement by a parent. Again, we direct in one way, that's the exhorting. We encourage, we are reinforcing what we want them to do. 
And then lastly, he talks about charging. Insisting, imploring, or urging is from the verb to bring forward a witness and hence it came to mean to declare solemnly. And it's to be emphatic in stating an opinion or a desire. And so here's my challenge. Are we exhorting? Are we encouraging? Are we char are charging our children to follow the Lord? Or are we provoking them and discouraging them? Paul writes this. Back in Ephesians 6.4, we read it earlier in Colossians 3.21. Ephesians 6.4, says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, so we have a don't do this, but do this. Then Colossians 3.21, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And so that's what Paul is saying. That's the opposite of the encouraging, the exhorting, the charging. That's what we should be doing. We don't always do that, but that's why uh, Paul challenges the family, in particular the fathers, in those verses there. So, what then is the purpose of this exhorting, this encouraging, this charging? It should not be aimless, but have a purpose. Do we have a purpose for our children in our encouragement? Well, Paul tells us right here what it is. It's what we would call a purpose clause as he writes it. And the purpose is of the encouraging, the exhorting, the charging is that our children would walk with the purpose of a manner worthy of God. That is the purpose of this, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's directed towards the aim of seeing them in this way. And that should also be the aim of us fathers for their children. It's not that our children be rich or famous or smart or pretty or handsome, all the worldly things, they themselves may not be bad. But if those things become an idol, then it is bad. And so the purpose of this is for them to walk in a manner worthy or suitable of the Lord. Now, what does Paul mean when he talks about walking? You see this term quite a bit in the Old Testament. And walking figuratively means the walk of life. It's how we live. It's how we conduct ourselves day to day. And it's a favorite way that Paul would designate the whole of a man or woman's life in a manner that honors God. Again, in, verse, uh, in Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes this. You'll hear some words that are similar to our passage uh, in Thessalonians. Uh, Paul writes, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In our passage, Paul doesn't tell us what walking should look like, but in Ephesians, he does. We want our children to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What is that? With humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And we don't always do that. And so when we fail... We confess and we move on and we try to learn. And so that's what we want to do is we want our children to walk that way. Now, we can't expect our children, both young children physically, but also spiritual children, to walk in a way that we do as we have matured, especially if they are young. And what happens when a ch child begins to walk? Well, they start crawling. Then they pull themselves up on the couch. 
and then they start cruising. And oftentimes you're holding their fingers right and you're kind of walking around behind the child as they're kind of walking. They can't do it on their own. And then at some point, they stand on those wobbly feet and they start to take that first step. And what are we doing as parents? We're exhorting them. Come to daddy. Come to mama. Something along those lines. We exhort them. We encourage them. We charge them to do that. We should be doing that spiritually. And I must confess, as a granddad, as chaplain, I'm enjoying watching my grandkids now. Even yesterday, I was doing that with little Harper walking around. And what do we do? We direct them. We don't want them to walk into trouble. So as we are guiding them, they have our fingers, we are directing them the way that they should go. We should be doing that spiritually. Directing them in the way they should go. They don't know. Their nature is sinful. So we direct them to walk in a manner worthy of God. We should take a similar approach in their spiritual life with the aim that they walk in that manner. Now, Paul talks about that we walk in a manner worthy of God. What then are we to do? What can we learn about God? He then continues and he talks about this God in verse 12 who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord of God. We find here something that God does himself. What does he do? He calls us. That's calling. He invites us. And it's directed to believers. This whole book is directed to believers. And Paul uses the present tense where he talks about calling. Not the usual past tense. When you talk about the order of salvation, calling is one of those. Justification, sanctification, glorification, all in the order of salvation. Typically is the past tense because God has done that in the past tense. But here Paul's doing it in the present tense to remind us of the timeless presence that God's call never ceases in our life. He is always calling. Again, uh, Ken alluded to this morning, but if you look at Romans 8, 28 and 30, it says this, And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called, present tense, according to His purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son in order that he, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called past tense. And those whom he called past tense, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So it speaks of God is constantly calling us. He's inviting us. What is he inviting us into? It tells us here in two his own kingdom. And Paul here uses an intensive and reminds it's God's own kingdom. It's His to give. It's His to invite us into. And there's a now and a not yet aspect, just like salvation. There's a now and a not yet aspect to this kingdom. There's some sense that it's present now and some sense in the future. Oh, but when He comes back, we'll realize His kingdom in His fullness we'll recognize and realize this, this salvation in its fullness. And that was the central theme of the gospel of Jesus and of Paul if you look throughout the, uh, the epistles. What does Jesus tell us in Mark 1, 14 and 15? Mark writes this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled 
and the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because Christ was there. Repent and believe in the gospel. But what is this kingdom? It's God's righteous rule operating in men and over men. And it's closely linked in this passage to glory, which is God's manifestation of God's glory to men. And what we see here is this kingdom, this invitation, it's a glory, it's an incentive to live a life worthy of the Lord because of what we have to look forward to. And it's all found in faith. It's all found in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul writes this to believers. So then, fathers, how do we apply this to our life? All exhorting, encouraging, charging is done with a view to a certain result in the lives of our children. That of living a life worthy of the Lord. Are we living that life worthy of the Lord? Gals, this doesn't get you off the hook either because you're charged to walk in a way worthy of the Lord as well. But this is directed to fathers this morning. We should encourage our children to live a life worthy of the Lord. And we too are to set an example. We need to remember that our children see what we do, but also God sees what we do. And at the end of our life, we want to hear the words of Jesus, Well done, good and faithful servant. And we can only do that by the enabling of the Spirit within us, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who changes us, who makes us more Christ-like. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the words of Paul this morning. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we keep our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I pray, Lord, that we would set a godly example for our physical children, but also for our spiritual children. And, Lord, that we would direct them to walk in a manner that's worthy of you, and I pray that we would do so also. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.